Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hey everyone, Craig Baird here. Before I begin today's story, I want to take a moment and ask that you check me out on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. There are several tiers with great benefits, from ad-free content to t-shirts and other cool stuff. And if you're a fan of Canadian History X, make sure you check out my other shows, From John to Justin and Canada, A Yearly Journey. And don't forget, you can also donate directly to the show at www.canadaehx.com. It helps keep this show going. All right, on with the show. A listener's note. The following episode contains coarse language, adult themes, and content of a violent and disturbing nature, and may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. A bearded man sat in a small boat, waves gently lapping against the wooden hull. In the distance, he watched the last of his ship disappear over the horizon. Over a year ago, he had left his home on a quest to find fame, fortune, and the Northwest Passage. And it had all come crashing down. Now, with several men dying of scurvy and his young son sitting next to him, he knew he would never see home again. He was surrounded by water where he was left here to die by his mutinous crew. He could only hope that a small group of marooned sailors would survive the rest of the summer, perhaps the autumn. But without assistance, they would never last the winter. I'm Craig Baird. This is Canadian History X, and today I'm sharing the story that much of it has been lost to time. The facts surrounding the bearded man are hazy and mysterious, but regardless, this is The Life and Times of Henry Hudson. The name might sound familiar, and that's because, though Henry Hudson might be shrouded in mystery, Hudson's Bay, on the other hand, is a defining feature of Canada. More of an inland marginal sea than a bay, it covers 1.2 million square kilometers of northern Ontario, western Quebec, northeast Manitoba, and southeast Nunavut. The river catchment area of the bay is even larger and stretches for 3.9 million square kilometers from the Rockies to the Great Lakes to northern Labrador. The eastern Cree called the bay Winnipeki, meaning muddy or brackish water because of the low salinity of the water and its low evaporation rate. As for its modern name, that comes from one man, Henry Hudson. It's not known exactly when Henry Hudson was born, but it was sometime between 1565 and 1570, most likely in London, England. He was married to a woman named Catherine and had three sons, Oliver, Richard, and John. He didn't enter the historical record until 1607 when he was commissioned by the Muscovy Company to embark on a mission to find the North Pole and the Northeast Passage. The Northeast Passage was a theorized route over Europe and Russia that reached the Pacific, the opposite of the Northwest Passage over North America. During the 17th century, it was believed that since the Arctic had so much daylight in the summer, the ice melted completely, allowing for passage. The Muscovy Company was an English trading company that was first chartered in 1555 as an offshoot of the Company of Merchant Adventurers to New Lands. That original company was founded by Richard Chancellor, Sir Hugh Willoughby, and Sebastian Cabot. Sebastian was John Cabot's son, the man who reached Newfoundland in 1497. 
The company's first attempt at finding the Northeast Passage was in 1553, when Sir Hugh Willoughby ventured into the mouth of the Varzina River, near present-day Murmansk, Russia. Willoughby and his crew were never seen alive again. Years later, a Russian fisherman stumbled upon their bodies, frozen solid. Richard Chancellor was the next adventurer seeking the Northeast Passage in a custom-built ship in 1553. He reached the northern Davina River in northern Russia and then walked 970 kilometers on foot to Moscow. After those failed attempts, the Muscovy Company was established, and its directors embarked on a mission to find the Northeast Passage once again. Stephen Burrow reached Navajoy Zemlya in the Arctic Ocean over northern Russia, but was unable to penetrate the ice. The next attempt came three decades later when the company looked to a young mariner making a name for himself, Henry Hudson. There is some speculation that Hudson was related to someone within the company who gave him the contract to find the passage. As I said, at the start, facts are a little hazy, but it can be assumed that Hudson likely learned how to be a sailor while working on English ships for two decades until he was given his own command. In 1587, he may have actually sailed with John Davis, an English explorer who not only sought the Northwest Passage, but was also the first European to reach the Falkland Islands. On May 1, 1607, Hudson and his crew of 11 men sailed out of England on the Hopewell. They were joined by Hudson's young son, John, who would join him on every voyage he made from this point on. They reached Greenland on May 13th and explored northward until May 22nd when Hudson turned east. He eventually reached islands off the north coast of Norway and then turned south to return to England, arriving on September 15th, 1607. While he was unsuccessful in finding a northeast passage, his expedition did find plentiful whaling grounds which began the whaling industry in the waters off northern Norway. But this didn't impress the company, who never hired him again. Two years later, in 1609, the Dutch East India Company hired him to find a passage to Asia over Russia. The Dutch East India Company was formed on March 20, 1602, and had a monopoly over the trade activities in much of Asia. Finding the Northeast Passage would cut down on travel, thereby increasing the company's profits. And while Hudson was in Amsterdam waiting for supplies, he heard rumors of a possible passage over North America, but the Dutch East India Company insisted that Hudson go over Russia to reach Asia because the theory stated that the trip would just be shorter that way. On April 4, 1609, Hudson left Amsterdam and sailed over the northern Scandinavian area and into Russian waters on the Hav Main, or Half Moon. But when he reached the northern coast of Russia, he could go no further as ice blocked his path. Faced with two choices to go back to Amsterdam, as he had been instructed if there was ice or venture west over the Atlantic and towards North America, well, Hudson chose the second option. On July 2nd, 1609, the Half Moon reached the Grand Banks of Newfoundland, and Hudson continued west. Around this time, he recorded in his journal that the crew reported seeing a mermaid. He stated, quote, As big as one of us, her skin very white and long hair hanging down behind, of color black, in her going down they saw her tail, which was like the tail of a porpoise, and speckled like a mackerel. Now it's likely they mistook a beluga whale for a mermaid, and they continued on towards present-day Nova Scotia where Hudson's ship nearly struck Sable Island. Located 175 kilometers off the coast, the island measures 43 kilometers long but only 1.21 kilometers across at its widest point. 
The first shipwreck happened decades before Hudson arrived in 1583, when the English ship Delight struck the island. And for the next three centuries, over 350 vessels shipwrecked on the island and its sand bars. With the wreck averted, Hudson reached La Havre, Nova Scotia on July 14th. Located in Lunenburg's county on the southeast coast of the province, this is where Hudson first came across the Mi'kmaq people, who signaled they were willing to trade beaver pelts. But Hudson instead chose to remain in the area for the next 10 days, where his crew fished and conducted repairs, but didn't trade. Then, Hudson did something very odd. Despite no indication that the Mi'kmaq were hostile towards him, Hudson had a dozen men take muskets and a small cannon ashore. They attacked the Mi'kmaq village and drove the inhabitants away. Then they raided the settlement's pelts, boats, and supplies. The Mi'kmaq never forgot that attack. Two years later, the Mi'kmaq of that area took six men from a Dutch expedition captive. The men were never seen by Europeans again. Meanwhile, with his loot on board, Hudson left the area soon after the pillaging of the settlement and turned south towards present-day United States. And on August 4th, Hudson reached Cape Cod. Johannes Delette, a director of the West India Company in 1625, using Hudson's journal, wrote, They bent their course to the south until, running south-southwest and southwest by south, they again made land, which they supposed to be an island, and gave it the name of New Holland, but afterwards discovered that it was Cape Cod. Hudson sailed around Chesapeake Bay and Delaware Bay, and then reached a river and a natural harbour on September 3rd. He named the river Meritius, but it became known by another name, the Hudson River. Believing he was on the coast of a small island and the river was the straight passage he was looking for, Hudson took the ship into the river. On September 6th, second mate John Coleman was sent with a group of five men to scout the area in a rowboat. As they explored, two canoes filled with Lenape people emerged and attacked the scouting party. Two of Hudson's men were wounded and John Coleman was hit in the throat by an arrow and he died soon after. The survivors returned to the ship at 10 a.m. the next day with Coleman's body. His death is commemorated at the Hudson County Courthouse and records show him as the first recorded murder in what became metropolitan New York. Coleman was then buried on either Coney Island, Staten Island, or Sandy Hook. Over the subsequent centuries, the people who lived in the nearby Hudson Highlands believed that the spirit of Coleman became a dwerk or goblin who wears Dutch clothing and causes storms to sink ships. Meanwhile, Hudson began to trade with the indigenous peoples off the area near Upper New York Bay, and the first transaction occurred on September 12th. For the next 10 days, Hudson journeyed up the river hoping to find a passage to the other side of the continent, but instead he reached present-day Albany before he realized he could go no further. He turned around on September 23rd and left for Europe, arriving in Dartmouth, England on November 7th, 1609. Hudson may not have found a passage to the Pacific, but his explorations of present-day New York gave the Dutch claims to the region. And while meeting with his Dutch backers, Hudson told them about the beavers he saw, and it was enough for the Dutch, who only a few years later established New Amsterdam on Manhattan Island, and that settlement eventually became known as New York City. Realizing the potential to exploit North America, King James I of England forbade Hudson from working with the Dutch again. Instead, the Virginia Company and British East India Company hired him in 1610 to find the Northwest Passage. The Virginia Company was established in 1606 with the objective of colonizing the eastern coast of North America, while the British East India Company was slightly older, 
It was established in 1600 to trade in the Indian Ocean. In the spring of 1610, Hudson prepared to embark on his grandest voyage to date aboard the Discovery, and alongside him was a crew that can only be described as a hodgepodge of personalities. Robert Jute was the first mate and disliked Hudson, who felt the same about Jute. Robert Bylet joined the crew as one of the ship's navigators. He was known for his courage in the face of danger and his skill as a navigator. John King, described as a troublemaker, was made quartermaster. Among the rest of the crew was Edward Wilson, who came aboard as the surgeon, and Abacut Prickett, a serving man to Sir Dudley Diggs, a politician and investor in the Virginia Company of London. He served as the record keeper. Thomas Woodhouse joined the crew as a mathematician, and Philip Staff was on board as the ship's carpenter. There was also William Wilson, no relation to Edward, another man described as a troublemaker. And of course, John Hudson. His son was aboard as well as the Discovery left London on April 17, 1610. It stopped to pick up Henry Green, who the crew felt was essentially plucked out of nowhere. He was described as a desolate young man who had been disowned by his family but had a good education that impressed Hudson. And despite having no sailing experience, Hudson promised him a full seaman's wages when they returned to England. And it did not take long for rumors to spread on the ship, stating that Green was Hudson's spy, who was going to spy on the crew. And as those rumors swirled, Hudson and his crew reached Iceland on May 11th. And this is where Henry Green attacked Edward Wilson and beat him severely. It's not known why he did this, or if he was even punished for it. As the ship passed Iceland, another altercation happened. Robert Jute was intoxicated, and accused Green of being a spy for Hudson, which threw the captain into a rage. He threatened to return to Iceland and throw Jute off the ship, but was convinced by the crew to press on, and on June 4th, the Discovery reached Greenland. Instead of sailing south as he had done previously, Hudson continued west over present-day Labrador and Quebec. On June 25th, he reached what is now the Hudson Strait, which runs between Quebec and Baffin Island. And although it bears his name, he was not the first European to reach this area. Martin Frobisher arrived in 1578 during his explorations of Baffin Island. Meanwhile, Hudson faced more troubles. At Apatook Island, located south of Baffin Island in Quebec's Angava Bay, Jewett instigated a crew mutiny against Hudson. Before things got completely out of control, and with the support of Philip's staff, Hudson was able to convince the crew not to mutiny and to accept his leadership once again. At Diggs Island, scouts were sent to the island located off the coast of northern Quebec, just before the entrance of what became known as Hudson Bay. They reported seeing hundreds of birds on the island. Abacut Prickett begged Hudson to remain in the area for two days in the hopes of refreshing the crew and stocking food supplies. But Hudson refused. By his calculations, he expected to be in Asia, and he believed they were about to reach the Pacific. Then, a week later, on August 2nd, Hudson reached a huge expanse of water that brought him immense joy because he firmly believed, as did the crew, that they had just navigated through the Northwest Passage. Hudson took this moment to put Robert Jute on trial for mutiny. He was convicted of inciting disobedience and reduced in rank. Robert Bylet became the new first mate. Hudson began to navigate south along what he believed was the Pacific coast, but really was Quebec, which eventually turned to the west. Progress was slow, as he took his time to map the coast. Each day, the discovery only covered 16 kilometers. Then, after passing what he believed to be a southern outlet, the coast started to turn to the north, and most distressing of all, 
slowly back to the east. The brutal realization dawned on him. He was not in the Pacific. He was in a huge bay. And worst of all, winter was coming. The discovery turned back east, but Hudson was blocked to the north by the growing field of sea ice spreading southward. Remembering that he had passed what seemed like a large outlet in the south weeks earlier, he took the discovery towards it. He didn't realize it at the time, but the bay he was in was so large, it had its own little bay within it, James Bay. Hudson was heading straight into a dead end. Believing that they could escape through the southern outlet, he spent days crisscrossing it to find a way out. And with each passing day, the ice ventured further to the south. Abacut Prickett wrote, A labyrinth without end. We had a storm, and the wind brought the ice upon us so fast that in the end we were driven to put her into the chiefest of the ice, and there to let her lie. To add tragedy to the situation, crew member John Williams died of an unknown reason. His possessions were auctioned off to the crew, as per naval tradition. A great cloak gown was highly prized because it was one of the few pieces of warm weather clothing among the crew. But rather than auction it off, Hudson took it and gave it to Green. This didn't help the mood aboard as days later the ice seized the ship and completely blocked their path. They were not going home. Philip's staff suggested to Hudson to build a house for the winter. Hudson refused, still thinking he could find a southern outlet. A week later, Hudson ordered the crew to build that house. Staff told him that now it was too cold to build and in response, Hudson threw him out of his cabin, berated him and threatened to hang him. When Henry Green treated staff with civility, it enraged Hudson so much that he tore the warm cloth off Green's body and gave it to Robert Bylot. Two days later, a house was built. The winter was long and full of sorrow, as none of the sailors were dressed for the weather. They believed they were going to Asia within months of their departure from England, and now they were forced to survive frigid temperatures with mostly summer clothes. Prickett wrote of the winter, To speak of all of our troubles would be too tedious. Amazingly, everyone did survive that winter. The ice broke free in the spring of 1611, and the crew believed they were finally going to head back home. But Hudson, he had other plans. As the ice melted and the discovery was freed from its clutches, an indigenous man, likely Cree, arrived at the small house the crew had built to trade two deerskins and two beaver skins for a knife, a looking glass, and buttons. This was likely the first transaction of furs in the Hudson Bay area in Canadian history. By 1670, the Hudson's Bay Company was established, and fur trading would become the biggest industry of the entire region. Once the trade with Hudson was done, the indigenous man promised to return in a few days, but he never came back. After several more days of waiting, Hudson took a boat to find him and found a settlement a few days' travel away. When he reached it, the indigenous people refused to trade with him, and to keep him away from their settlement, they lit the forest on fire. Hudson returned to the crew only to find that in his absence, fishing was poor and rations were low. With the ice now gone, Hudson could venture onwards with months to spare to find his route to the Pacific. Hudson truly believed he was close to finding the Northwest Passage, but the crew begged him to return home. In early June 1611, he told the crew they were on their way to England. But as the days went on, the crew realized he had lied. With only two weeks of supplies left and the crew wanting to go back to Diggs Island to hunt birds, open talk of mutiny began to circulate on the ship led by Robert Jute once again. Several crew members were immediately in favor, but the problem was Robert Jute could not pilot the ship home. 
He needed the navigational skills of Robert Bylet, who was completely loyal to Hudson, at least for a time. For reasons unknown, as talk of mutiny grew on the ship, Hudson stripped Bylet of his rank and gave it to John King, an illiterate crew member. And with that, Bylet joined the mutineers' cause, and Hudson's time was quickly running out. As the crew readied themselves to take over the ship, Hudson split up the remaining rations among them. It was food that was nearly rancid, and rumors swirled that Hudson kept the best food for himself in his cabin. On the night of June 23, 1611, Henry Green and William Wilson went to Abacup Prickett's cabin to inform him of the mutiny. The plan was to put Hudson, his son, and the scurvy-sickened men into a boat and leave them in the bay. Prickett protested and told them they would join if they swore an oath they would do no harm to Hudson, his son, or the crew members suffering from scurvy. This was agreed to, and at daybreak, the crew made their move. Hudson, his son John, mathematician John Wydos, and five crew members with scurvy were thrown overboard into a boat. Philip's staff remained loyal to Hudson and volunteered to follow him. The crew then gave them clothing, powder, and shot, pikes, an iron pot, food, and other items. After getting rid of their captain and the others, the crew on the Discovery went into Hudson's cabin and found a concealed hoard of food. They began to gorge themselves on it, and as they ate, Hudson put up a sail on the small boat and was quickly catching up to the Discovery when it unfurled its sails and quickly left Hudson and the others behind. Prickett wrote, Now were the sick men driven out of their cabins into the shallop. They stood out on the ice, the shallop being fast at the stern of the ship, and so they cut her head fast from the stern, and towards the east they stood in the clear sea and fly as from an enemy. The men left behind were never seen by Europeans again. For the Discovery crew, it was not an easy journey back to England. Henry Green took over the ship soon after the mutiny and made Robert Bylet his first mate. Abacut Prickett later learned that Green was going to maroon them, but was thwarted by the rest of the crew who hoped to get a pardon for the mutiny from Prickett's friend, Sir Dudley Diggs. When the Discovery reached Diggs Island, they found birds, but also the Inuit. As they arrived on the island, the frightened Inuit attacked. Two men were mortally wounded as Green, in a classic scene of redemption from a movie, fought the Inuit with the broken staff of a pike so the other members could escape to the ship. Green was shot in the back with an arrow as he climbed aboard, and his journey came to an end. The survivors found another island and killed enough birds to stock up supplies and make their way back to England. But before they did, Jewett died of an unknown cause. And in the end, only eight of the 13 mutinous crew members made it back thanks to Bylet's skills as a pilot. When they arrived, they were arrested and put on trial, but no punishment was levied against them for their mutiny. One theory for why they were spared is because of the experience they gained traveling to North America, which could be used on future expeditions. But this is an episode about Henry Hudson, and he was left behind in a bay that now bears his name. So what about Hudson and the rest? Whatever happened to them? The first expedition to find Henry Hudson was conducted in 1612 by Thomas Button. He sailed in the Hudson Bay aboard the Discovery, the same ship that Hudson watched disappear over the horizon in 1611. Another expedition was conducted by Zachariah Gillam between 1668 and 1670, but nothing was found of the lost men. There were rumors that Hudson was never cast adrift but murdered on the ship, 
The accounts of Hudson being marooned comes from Prickett's journal and those accounts could be biased since Prickett and the men knew they would be tried for mutiny when they returned to Europe. He would want to put the mutiny in the best light and murder was not a good look. If Hudson had been marooned, there's no reason to think that he and the others wouldn't have survived. Hudson was a tough and determined man who was an experienced sailor and explorer. At the time, Hudson and a small crew were no further than 75 kilometers from shore, something that could be easily navigated. In addition, they were set adrift on June 23rd, well into warmer weather which increased their chances of their survival. In 1631, Captain Thomas James found the remains of a shelter on Danby Island, located in southeast Hudson Bay. Since the ship's carpenter, Philip Staff, was one of the men marooned with Hudson, it's possible that he helped build a shelter to protect the stranded men through another harsh winter. According to the report of Captain James, there were several sticks standing in the ground with chip marks made from a steel blade. One Inuit legend states that a small boat was found in the water filled with dead white men but one living boy, who may have been John Hudson. They didn't know what to do with the boy, so he was tied up outside with the dogs. Cree oral histories speak of a group of white men with bloated faces and limbs who arrived on the shore. They called the leader Firebeard because of his red hair. He apparently married a Cree woman and had children with her. So the true ending of Henry Hudson and his crew is unknown. But there's one more story and it involves another famous explorer, Samuel de Champlain. At the time that Hudson was marooned by his crew, Samuel de Champlain was in the Ottawa River Valley area. In 1613, two years after the mutiny, Champlain found out that the Algonquins had captured an English child who they said was a survivor of a wreck in the Northern Sea. They wanted to make a gift out of him. He turned down the gift, not believing that it was an actual English child and never saw the child. But the story inspired Champlain to journey up the Ottawa River in 1613 in the hopes of reaching Hudson Bay. And that's where the story ends, but perhaps that child was John Hudson, who survived with the indigenous peoples and found his way to what is now Southern Ontario. John Hudson was marooned in 1611 and could have easily been transported down the Ottawa River over the next two years, going from Hudson Bay down the Herakana River to the Ottawa River to Deep River. It's very possible in that small amount of time. But as with so much to do with history, much of it is only speculation and theories. And that is how the story of Henry Hudson, his son, and the other crew will remain. I hope you enjoyed that episode and our look at Henry Hudson. Next week, we're looking at the Montreal Parliament Fires. Information from Canadian Encyclopedia, Biography, Wikipedia, CBC, Company Adventures, and Champlain's Dream. This show is researched, produced, and written by me, Craig Baird, with the help of Dila Velasquez. Audio production and design by Rosalind Kufor. If this is your first time listening and you like what you heard, please take a moment and give us a five-star review to help other people find these amazing stories. And there are so many for you to sink your teeth into. If you enjoy this podcast, then please check out my other podcasts, From John to Justin, Canada, A Yearly Journey, Pucks and Cups, and Canada's Great War. We love hearing from you, so if you have a show topic you want me to cover, email me at craig at canadaehx.com. Or stop by my website and social media. I'll include all of those in my show notes. Until next time, I'm Craig Baird, and this is Canadian History X.